The title of this morning's sermon is Glory Unwrapped, and the text will be Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Well, this past week has not been one of my finest weeks. We'll put it that way. I think it was earlier in the week, maybe Tuesday, I was driving around. Get time to think, you know, when you drive, especially around here, a lot of traffic. And I, I'm just... And I actually said these words, I don't know if it was out loud, but I said these words to the Lord. Lord, you seem rather small right now. You don't seem big in my eyes. You seem rather inglorious. Now, I'm just being honest with the Lord. I'm working on that, just saying, Lord, this is where I'm at. This is what I'm feeling at the moment. But what I was thinking in my mind was this. There was just... There were unmet expectations that were going through my mind at that moment. There were dreams unfulfilled. There were circumstances in my life. I just felt so limited. And I didn't like what was happening. And yes, I was complaining. But there's something else that was happening at that moment as well. I was longing for something. I was longing For God to show his glory in my life and in those circumstances of which I was speaking of. See, glory is something we've been talking a lot about if you've been with us during our Advent series. In fact, the title of our Advent series is A Longing for Glory. A Longing for Glory. That begs the question, doesn't it? What is glory? It's kind of a slippery term, isn't it? How do you define it? Let, Let me give it a shot. Glory is that of great worth. It's something or someone of great worth, of resplendent beauty, of dignity, of honor, that grabs our attention and our affections. So when you see glory, you know it. And you also want a part of it as well. Glory is like a magnet. It draws us to itself or to that person who manifests that glory. Glory. I was thinking this week, it's one of the reasons why. So I Todd here, Todd was telling me about Chicago. They had 5 million people who descended upon downtown Chicago. Why? To see the victory parade of the Chicago Cubs after they won the World Series. Why would 5 million people come down, fight traffic, to be a part of this parade? Because they wanted to be a part of something bigger. That dreams do come true. Even the Cubs, after what, 108 years, can win the World Series. The curse can be reversed. They want to be a part of that. That's what glory does. Do you see it? Glory makes you stand up and notice. It also makes you bow down and worship. That's glory. Do you need a little glory this morning? That's where we're going this morning. I need a little glory. You see, glory in the end, moves us from a self-pity to worship. It can take us out of our small, small little world, our world of doubts, and it can enable us to see beyond our problems, our troubles, our, que- excuse me, our questions, and our doubts. Yes, we all want glory, but there's only one little problem. The glory that we desire the glory that we seek often escapes us. 
It's concealed. Why? Because we live in a very inglorious world. A world tainted with sin. And we fail to see glory. And we can fail to live in the good of it. But this morning, the message is simply this. We can know glory. We can see glory. Why? Because the glory we seek is found in Jesus. The Christmas story reminds us that Jesus is the gift we seek. He is the hope of glory. He is the answer to every fear, doubt, and dream that we may have. Jesus is glory unwrapped for you and me. And that's the title of the sermon, Glory Unwrapped. And Jesus is that glory unwrapped. With that in mind, let us pray. Well, Lord, we ask this morning that you would give us eyes to see. Lord, I thank you for the Advent Christmas season that's built into our calendars, into our culture as well. Lord, that draws our attention to you, O Savior, God who came in the flesh. But Lord, I'm also aware this morning that as we rehearse the Christmas story, that it's very familiar to most of us. And sometimes that familiarity can even blind us from seeing what you want us to see. So Lord, we're asking this morning that you would give us fresh eyes to see as we hear the story, the wonderful story of Christ's birth once again, and allow us to get a glimpse of your glory. Amen. Amen. Let's begin with Luke chapter 2. I'm going to read the first seven verses of this wonderful narrative, starting with verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Let's just stop there for a moment. Just about all of us, we've heard that story, haven't we, a few times. If we haven't read it, we've certainly heard it at Christmas. But there's something that we can miss in this rather matter-of-fact summary, which we just read. It's the very context of Christ's birth. A context which was, you could say, very inglorious. When I read those first seven verses, you know what I think? Where's the glory? Where's the wonder? It all seems rather hidden, doesn't it? And I can't help trying to place myself in this narrative if Joseph and Mary felt the same way as well. And that leads to the first point, glory concealed. These first seven verses. For what we have in these first seven verses is not so much glory as subjugation and even scandal. Why was Joseph going to Bethlehem in the first place? Well, church, he was going because he had no choice. 
See, at this time, you could say Israel was an occupied country and that people were forced to pay high taxes to Caesar. Caesar Augustus had enacted or called for a census. Why? To be taken so that he could make sure that he would be able to collect as much revenue as possible. So Joseph, being a descendant of David, King David, had to go to his ancestral hometown, Bethlehem. But you understand, to go to Bethlehem was a big deal, almost 100 miles away. You understand, Joseph got no vacation time. There was no travel stipend. And he had to travel nearly 100 miles by foot. Sorry, I don't see any donkeys in the Christmas story there. Most likely by foot. In a sense, you could say this was a forced pilgrimage that would take many days and perhaps weeks. Lost work, lost income, all to line the coffers of Caesar Augustus. From a human standpoint, this sense that you see was a reminder to every Jew that they were not free that they were subjects of Caesar. And their Savior and Messiah had not yet come. You ever taken a long walk? We don't walk a lot these days. And maybe you have taken a long hike or walk. You realize when you walk, there's a lot of time just to think, isn't there? Just to think and to contemplate. I just wonder what went through Joseph and Mary's mind as they were walking, rehearsing all that had happened in this whole situation. There's a lot of time to dwell on these inglorious thoughts, aren't there? But as hard as this might have been for Joseph and Mary, you got to know there's something else even more pressing upon their mind as they were traveling to Bethlehem. For there was also the scent of scandal as well. Notice verse 5 here with me. That Joseph was registered to be married, excuse me, registered with Mary, his betrothed. That is, this was the one, Mary, whom he was legally Engaged to. And, by the way, who was with child. In other words, Mary was an unwed, pregnant teenager. Now, in Jewish circles, in that day, that was a big deal. No, no, that was scandalous. Now, we know, if we go back to Luke 1, that this child, Jesus, was conceived by who? The Holy Spirit. Right? To the Virgin Mary. But those around them either didn't know it or refused to believe it. And so Joseph and Mary suffered. With this in mind, have you ever wondered why Joseph traveled a long journey to Bethlehem with Mary in the first place? Now, as head of the household, Joseph had to go to Bethlehem for the census. But Mary did not need to go. Why did Joseph bring Mary with him? We don't know all the reasons for sure, but we can surmise, can't we? Maybe, obviously, he wanted to be there for the birth. He did not want to leave Mary in the last days of pregnancy. I get that. He wanted to make sure that she, she was with him in case he did not get back in time. Of course, that's very plausible. But maybe, just maybe, something else was being factored into Joseph's mind as well that accounted for the reason he would take Mary with him on this long journey. See, Joseph may well have wanted to spare Mary the ridicule and shame of childbirth in her own town. 
He may have wanted to shield her. He was a noble man to shield her from those condemning eyes. Those who would say, if Jesus was born there, that he was an illegitimate child. Whatever the case, the whole narrative leaves us wondering, where's the glory? Don't get me wrong, God's at work very much in this narrative. Oh yeah, he's using the economic and political levers of Rome to direct Joseph to Bethlehem. And may I propose, he's even using the scent of scandal so that Joseph would take Mary with him as well to this town of Bethlehem. Oh, God's at work. Why? All in the fulfillment of Scripture. That the Savior would be born in Bethlehem, as prophesied some 700 years earlier by the prophet Micah. God is in control. And yet, his glory is still concealed. But all that changes, verses 8 through 15. Why? Because there's more to the story, isn't there? There's more than meets the eye. Yet only Luke, of all the gospel writers, only Luke includes this section, 8 through 15, of Luke chapter 2, as a contribution to this wonderful Christmas story. And it's here we get the glimpse of glory. In the midst of subjugation, in the midst of scandal, in the obscure backwaters of Bethlehem. No, in the outlying fields of the obscure backwaters of Bethlehem, God reveals his glory. This is important, church. He doesn't reveal his glory in Jerusalem. He doesn't reveal his glory in the temple. He doesn't reveal his glory between the cherubim and the holy of holies. He does not reveal his glory among the burnt sacrifices. He reveals his glory in Bethlehem. Not Jerusalem, not Washington, D.C., not Miami, but in the sugarcane fields of Clewiston, Florida. You ever been off 27, Lake Okeechobee? Yeah, that's where he reveals his glory. Stunning. And who does he reveal his glory to? Look at verse 8. To a bunch of shepherds. And that leads to point two, glory revealed, verses 8 through 15. Let's take a look at verse 8 and 9. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Let's just pause just for a second to understand what's happening. After 400 years of inglorious silence, God chooses to reveal his glory. Oh yeah, he had revealed some glory in one sense. He had already, through an angel, appeared to Mary in Luke 1, to a relative, Zechariah, also to Joseph in a dream in Matthew 1. Oh, he had shown his glory in that sense. But nowhere are we told that the glory of the Lord shone around them as we see here in this very text. No, this glory was different. This was cosmic. What they were about to witness, these shepherds, is the most glorious birth announcement ever made, sung, shouted by angels with a light show and display of glory that even can even make the hardened, most hardened of shepherds shiver in fear. And all this was done in the cloak of darkness on the outskirts of the backwaters of Bethlehem to shepherds. 
You know about shepherds, right? Well, if you don't, let me share. Shepherds were at the bottom of the social ladder in Jewish society. They were the illiterate hirings, right? Hirelings. They were the second-class citizens. To quote one commentator, they shared the same status as tax collectors and dung sweepers. They were outcasts. They were misfits. They were not to be trusted. To quote another scholar, quote, to buy wool, milk, or a kid, the lamb, from a shepherd was forbidden on the assumption that if it would be stolen property. You see, because of their profession, shepherds were considered not only not trustworthy, but they were also considered ceremonially unclean as well. They were prohibited from the inner parts of the temple. They were left on the outer courts of the temple. They were the so-called sinners. They were the outcasts. They were the lowest of low. And friends, God came to reveal his glory to these shepherds, to these sinners, so to speak, to these outcasts. He came to reveal his glory to you and to me. Who is excluded from the good news of great joy? No one, not you, not me. Don't miss this. Don't miss the wonder. Don't miss the glory. Now let's read on. Verses 10 through 13. And the angels said to them, these shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you great news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Do you see what's happening here? Yes, the glory, the radiant glory and splendor of God is being revealed. But you see the bright lights, the multitudes of angels breaking out into song and praise is all testifying of someone. And that someone is a person. It's Jesus. A person who will bring peace, shalom, to a broken world, to an unglorious world. Verse 10, for the angel, the Lord says, fear not, for behold, I bring you, what? Good news of great joy that will be for all people. Literally, I am bringing you, see the word good news? It's the gospel. Same word for that. I am bringing you the gospel that will be for all people. What is the gospel? Who is the gospel? It's a baby. It's Jesus. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. That's a packed phrase right there. Wow. Let's unpack it, shall we? Number one, who is he? Who's this baby? Who is this gospel? He's a savior, meaning deliverer, redeemer. This speaks of his calling. Yes, shepherds. Yes, sinners. This child has come to rescue you and deliver you from sin and reconcile you to God. Why? So that you and I can know God and share and participate in his glory. He is the savior of the world. But there's more in this phrase. He's also the Christ. 
Okay, Christ isn't his last name, Jesus Christ, okay? It's a title, meaning he's the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the coming king. This term speaks of glory. This is the king who will come to make all things right. This is the king who will come to rule with righteousness, peace, and justice. How can this be? Because he is the Lord. In other words, he's Yahweh. He is God. This is his nature. God has come in the flesh. Friends, do you need a little glory this morning? What if you do? Look to Jesus. That's what the angels are proclaiming in word and song. It's what the Old Testament prophets had been saying all along. The prophet Isaiah spoke of this day to come in Isaiah 40, verse 5, when he said, The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. You see, God has always revealed his glory. He's always done it in creation, has he not? God throughout the Old Testament, reveals his, what we call, Shekinah glory, right? He did it in the tabernacle as a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. God revealed his glory at times in the Holy of Holies. But all that was an impersonal manifestation of his glory. What Isaiah is speaking of is this, the day will come when I will personally reveal my glory, the glory that we found in my son, Jesus. That day was coming. Church, that day is the day we're reading about right here. It's Christmas. We read in Hebrews chapter one, verse three, a couple of verses we'll put up there on the screen for you. Number one, that he, that is Jesus, he's clearly the context of Hebrews one here. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Reading in John 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. I think the point's clear, church. Jesus is the glory of God. Jesus is glory unwrapped. And he is that gift of glory to you and me. But what's most stunning about this narrative is not that Jesus had revealed a savior, king, and God to the lowly. What's perhaps most stunning is that God became lowly. He became a baby. And this will be a sign for you. Verse 12, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Let's just take this first part of this. God became a baby. Just reading one author, I don't know who it was, but I love the quote here. He says this, just to get our minds around this, if we possibly could. God incarnate became a baby. The God who roared, who could order armies and empires about like pawns and a chessboard. This God emerged in Palestine as a baby who could not speak or eat solid food or control his bladder. even if the lowly shepherds could have possibly anticipated such news about their Messiah being born. They just simply, there's no way they could have been prepared for what was next. Verse 12. Speaking of this baby, he'll be assigned to you. 
He'll be wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The very scene that Al described here a few moments ago. That he'll be born in a feeding trough, not in a manger. Excuse me, not in a mansion, but in a manger. To drive this point home, let me quote from author Philip Yancey, who was speaking of Queen Elizabeth II and her visit to the United States. He says this, Reporters delighted in spelling out the logistics involved. Speaking of Queen Elizabeth's visit. Her 4,000 pounds of luggage included two outfits for every occasion. A mourning outfit in case someone died, 40 pints of plasma, and white kid leather toilet seat covers. She brought along her own hairdresser, two valets, and a host of other attendants. A brief visit of royalty to a foreign country can easily cost $20 million. In meek contrast, God's visit to earth took place in an animal shelter with no attendants present and nowhere to lay the newborn king but a feeding trough. Indeed, the event that divided history and even our calendars into two parts may have had more animal than human witnesses. Could this be? Church, is this just a a cute myth, as some skeptic would say. Well, first of all, I hope you see by now, this isn't cute. <laughs> and second of all, if you were the author writing this story, is this how it would go down if you were making it up to convince a skeptical public of the birth of the Messiah and King? No way! You've got to be kidding! Now, if I was writing this story, this is how it would go. Well, first of all, I'd be doing press releases of Christ's birth in Jerusalem. You've got to go to Jerusalem, right? Not just Jerusalem and all its surroundings as well. I'd be hitting the Twitter feeds. I'd also be doing a little damage control with this Mary thing as well. And listen, my advanced setup team would not be one solitary man wearing camel hair and eating locusts in the desert named John the Baptist. That's just not how it would go down, okay? You with me there? I'd be working up the temple priests, the political correspondents. Forget a room at the inn. I'd be renting the whole town out. You know what else I'd do? I'd be clearing of it all, all of its animals. They're gone, completely gone, making way for the arrival of the king. Church, God's ways are not our ways. And his thoughts are not our thoughts. Oh, be grateful for that. In a most inglorious world, in a most inglorious manner, to a most inglorious people, God reveals his glory by sending his son Jesus to be born, to bear our flesh, to walk in our footsteps, and to die upon the cross, to reconcile us to God the Father that we may know and share in his glory. What does that mean for you and me today, though? Right here, sitting in the seats, what is it, December 11th, on a Sunday. His first coming. What, what does it mean to you? Let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to a person as well. You know, during Christmas time, it's really an odd time, isn't it? We can feel the, the weight I think of unmet expectations 
that this season uniquely brings with it. You know, we feel we ought to be happy because it's Christmas. But let's be honest. A lot of times, we're not. We talk about the glory of Christmas, and yet we look around at times and things can seem so inglorious. That's what I was feeling when I was driving around on Tuesday in the car. See, this Christmas story reminds us that Jesus was born into a very inglorious world. Our world. But you know what else? It didn't change after his birth. After Jesus, the Messiah, the King, and the Savior was born in a feeding trough, Caesar politically was still a king. The Jews still had to pay taxes. The lingering scent of scandal was still upon Joseph and Mary. In fact, we know what happens next. After the baby is born, they become refugees in Egypt. How about the shepherds? What a glorious moment. God reveals his glory to them. They go see the Savior who's been born. Then what happens the next day? They're back in that craggy hillside, tending sheep. The cold nights. They're back at the job. And in one sense, it looked like nothing had changed. This great news. The skies and heavens open up. Baby is born. Now back in the job, and it's Monday. What has changed? Oh, everything's changed. The birth of Jesus and the revelation of his glory meant something. It meant that God had come to earth to reconcile man and woman to himself, to bring us to glory through his death on the cross and his resurrection. And for those of us here who have placed their saving faith in Christ Jesus, this narrative means everything, that the baby Jesus, Messiah, was born. It means that Jesus, catch this, will fulfill every expectation he has placed upon your hearts, that he has placed in your heart. I'm talking about the expectations of how things ought to be. You have expectations, don't you? You know you do. We all have them. And it seems like Christmas time often brings these expectations and longings into focus. I mean, just listen afresh the songs of Christmas, the, the songs and the carols and the wishes of Christmas. Look at the movies that you like to watch during Christmas time. There's a longing, there's a thread, there's a theme in these songs and in these movies. There's a longing for peace and goodwill, not relational strife especially among your very own family members and loved ones. You want to believe that evil will triumph. Excuse me, that evil will not triumph. And love will win despite what you see around you. Right? You want to believe, yes, the Scrooge will see the heir of his ways and be converted. Like George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life. You want to know that your life counts for something, that your labor is not in vain. These are right, and these are good desires that God has placed in your life and that he wants to fulfill and will fulfill. How? Oh, we know how. Through his son, Jesus. It's a time of year in which we can often feel the loss of family members, 
and loved ones most acutely. We feel it strongly, I believe, because, well, we believe that it shouldn't be this way. Death should not be the end. We should not have to say goodbye to loved ones. Children's lives should not be snuffed out in their infancy or youth. That each one of us should live long enough to realize our dreams. In other words, we carry expectations. We carry dreams of transcending our fallen human nature. We long for the supernatural. We long for paradise. We long for heaven. We long for eternity. What are we doing, church? We're longing for glory. Do you see it? The glory that was revealed in Christ's first coming and the glory that would be consummated made fully ours upon his second coming. That's what we sing. Come, come, Emmanuel. Yes. Let those longings, church, let those longings of how things ought to be lead you to Christmas. Excuse me, lead you to Jesus this Christmas. Those desires, those longings, they're not teases. They're not mere fantasy. They were put there by God as we live in this imperfect and very inglorious world. Why? That we may long for and possess Jesus. A church, don't settle. Don't settle for counterfeit glories this Christmas. Open the one true present that will never fade, perish, wear out, disappear, or disappoint. Speaking of Jesus, glory unwrapped for you and me. Like the shepherds who heard the good news of glory unwrapped, let us make haste in our hearts and come to Jesus. In conclusion, let us read verses 15 through 20. What a fitting conclusion. The glory of God has been revealed to the angels. Here, take note of their response. Verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And look at verse 20. And the shepherds returned. Oh, they returned. Ah, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Church, let us do likewise. Let us pray. The band can come up. and We'll sing that last song we sung earlier this morning. Let's pray, church. Well, Lord, there's a realization this morning that when we say that we want to see your glory, that it is only you, O sovereign one, O spirit, who can do the very thing we ask. So, Lord, this morning, may we be bold to ask, would you show us a glimpse of your glory in the Son, Jesus? And may we, like the shepherds, glorify and praise your name. So, Lord, as we sing, yes, fill our mouth, mouths, 
Fill our hearts that we may believe that which we have heard, that we may go away praising our Savior and living in the good of the glory. Unwrap for us this Christmas, we pray. Amen.